out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is day 21 of 100 Days of Calling. It is edging down. Thank God. You know, I just have to be really appreciative and grateful for today. Uh, I've realized how far all of us have really come. Those of us who are still alive, we're beginning to see some some major changes. I'm reflecting specifically on the changes in South Texas. Um, you know, had had some real, really great feedback from you know these these candidates that are coming up. They they're all these women on the border in the Rio Grande Valley and <laughs> it's just really inspiring to see them and see their faces and see them fighting uh, for the for the boundaries of Texas and their families and everything um, I can't support them enough um, I just you know I'm, I'm kind of really moved so they have really screwed up both parties have had their chance to screw it up, and that's what I'm saying. That Tony Gonzalez, Cassandra Garcia, Myra Flores, and see her Monica, Monica de la Cruz, and District 15, 34, 23, and 28. They're all Republican, but it's the alternative to allowing Texas Democrats to stay entrenched in South Texas is an absolute no-go because they just fell deaf deaf and destruction to South Texas they just completely right over the head so I'm really excited to 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 at least talk about them they represent you know women who will do something they're not going to sit around and do nothing they're not going to let the cartels run over them. Uh, two of them are married to border patrol agents. They're like, screw this, you know, we'll we'll do it. I'll do it. And that's kind of where a lot of people are at. Um, you know, you you don't want entrenchments of the cartels in South Texas. You don't want to see them building shanty towns and encampments. You don't want them to kind of surrender to this low. Uh, this kind of harassment that goes on every single day and the way that the government just kind of ignores them like they're not people and so I guess the, I guess the Democrats don't need their vote <laughs> so I mean they forfeit they forfeit South Texas they forfeit the vote they know that there's another option so they're just picking the other one and let's give it a shot you know these women are super vo- motivated and they want to be heard. They want to be uh, protected. They want to provide protection for the people in the Rio Grande Valley and, and in South Texas on the border. Uh, they're going to do it way differently than um, Republicans have done it in the past because they're close. They're close to what happens there, and they're not going to do it wrong. I really don't believe that they will do it wrongly. I, I trust people who are from there. And I trust that they're not going to screw up the border. They'll just they'll just improve it because nobody else wants to do it. And they live there and, and I just I have full confidence that it'll get done if they get elected. So um, that's that's a really big thing, like a big stone on my heart is coming off. And I was really worried for years. So like the Zeitgeist, the, the spirit of the times, which is something I won't go on long about. Um, the the spirit of the times is really strong right now because people are are very dis, dis um, they're dissatisfied with the crime that they're experiencing in their districts. But I reconnected last week with Jed Darland, you know, who I have a personal story with. Um, in summer of last twenty twenty summer of 2020 when everybody was, you know, battling COVID and, you know, in certain places in the United States, there was more, more, um, riot conflict than other places. And thank God for that. But I was definitely in, in the epicenter of a major Antifa 
slash BLM conflict. It was like a combined effort um, to kind of really do major civic destruction on businesses. And while people were, were lowing about the monuments, I think businesses were getting torched, robbed, I mean, completely smashed up, totally looted. And these were businesses who were trying to survive the pandemic. And so I just recall the time when at 1 p.m. I walked out to pay my rent and couldn't do it because everyone had been told to go home by the weenie city officials who said to go home and shelter in place because Antifa was coming to tear up the town. I cannot believe that was told to the people who rent my who the the people who who were administrating the rent at my building they're like shelter in place because antifa is coming to tear up the town and i'm like no way so i did the exact opposite i got in my car and i went downtown to um to downtown kirkland where i wasn't supposed to go and there was jed darland and he was armed in aviators and there were other people five other men from Snohomish County that were there also armed with long guns uh, on the corners and then the people who had businesses who were trying to survive boarded up their windows and they were standing out in front of their their businesses I'll never forget it and then there were there were BLM marchers who did come and they were they were accompanied by police around the edges and then there was some sort of kabuki theater with the police you know getting down on one knee and 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 you know saying this you know anti-racist trope and apologizing floridly meanwhile on the other flank there was like five or ten of these really spooky looking looking like black block kids totally in black hoodies, black, you know, face masks, um, COVID masks, uh, and they were yelling and screaming with an enormous, you know, black flag. It looked like something from Afghanistan, like terrorist Afghanistan, like Taliban, but it didn't have Taliban on it. It had a big, like, Antifa logo on it, and, you know, on a stick, and they were, they were, yelling through the downtown but man as soon as they saw those armed guards they left they were out they were literally outgunned and they left and so people didn't relax until the the march and the parade was kind of like over on the other side but you know this went on for a little while and people were told to like go home they were told to go home they told they were told to submit to to anarcho tyranny wrecking their businesses that's what they were told to do by the city so while the city's policemen were playing patty cake with more or less peaceful protesters there were five people who were going to directly wreck the city running amok and had civilians not been there with long guns they would have stayed and they would have beat up, you know, business owners and, and crashed their businesses and taken their stuff. And so you get Wolfie Goldberg. You know, I can I could probably forgive her for not knowing what Antifa was because she's in New York City. It was more or less a West Coast problem. You know, Portland, Seattle, you know, places in Portland and Seattle and, you know, and a, and a few other places. But more or less, you know, I can forgive her for not knowing who Antifa was or an Antifa riot. But I kind of had this sort of triggered moment where, and I'll, I'll be quick about this sort of triggered moment, where I remember I, I suddenly recalled a burned out car on being on a, on a tow truck going at top speed coming down the 405 from northern Seattle. And I said, honey, they were coming from Chaz Chop. Because they did, they they torched vehicles, they burned down buildings, and they let it happen for over 30 days. So people couldn't defend their businesses. You know, the ones that that did try were beat up by mobs. In in you know that some 
of them did have guns, but it wasn't a deterrent because they were crazy. And and they had drugs in them and it was it was just insanity. If you want to know what real anarchy is like, that's it. You had mentally ill people with with you know, AK-47s erecting checkpoints and demanding demanding loot from people to get in their own buildings. That happened. That happened. So I just recall it with it's really strong, it's really fresh in my memory, and I had a chance to discuss it on Panburn last night, but I don't think it really it really really kind of penetrates like it did today when I saw Whoopi Goldberg go, blah, 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 blah. What's an Antifa riot? And I just think that she just was didn't know or was out of touch or something. So I spoke for ten minutes on this on this rear view. I just want you to know you're my hero for, for surviving all of it. Surviving COVID. Thank you for being alive and, and staying staying on the planet so you can hear me read. <laughs> so let's see who's with me. Amy. Hey Amy. I'm glad you're here with me. I'm gonna read the, the text now. So we're going to read Chapter 8, The Ecuadorian Asylum. So this is Australian Declaration of Abandonment. Oh boy. This is the part where Assange is abandoned by his own government. At around 1 p.m. on 19 June of 2012, Julian Assange enters the Ecuadorian Embassy in London, the next turning point in the story of his persecution. For the next almost seven years, he will not leave the red-brown brick building with white window frames centrally located in proximity to the luxury department store, Harrods. Assange seeks protection from America's wrath and therefore applies for political asylum. His written application states, among other things, It is my belief that the country of which I am a national, Australia, will not protect me and the country to which I am due to be extradited imminently from the U.K., Sweden will not prevent my onward extradition to the U.S. I ask that protection be extended so far as is reasonably possible to prevent such an occurrence. Throughout the Swedish extradition proceedings, from January 2011 to May 2012, Assange's lawyers in London had repeatedly appealed in writing and in person to the Australian government, asking for a diplomatic intervention to protect Assange. These appeals were transmitted through the Australian Embassy in Stockholm and in the Australian High Commission in London, but also directly to Foreign Minister Kevin Rudd and Justice Minister Nicola Roxon. According to his lawyers in Sweden, Assange faced not only many months of detention and near-complete isolation and a secret trial for alleged sexual offenses, but also the risk of a regular surrender to the United States, a risk that could also materialize in the United Kingdom. Their main request was always the same. The Australian government should urgently obtain assurances from both Sweden and the United Kingdom that Assange would not be extradited to the United States under any circumstances. There, influential individuals in public life made death threats against him, and he risked a politically motivated trial for journalistic activities that should not be criminalized as espionage in the first place. Of, the, of particular concern, they argued, was not only the excessive use of extreme isolation but by U.S. authorities, but also the prevailing practice of coercing guilty pleas and supporting testimony through the threat of enormous sentences in case of non-cooperation. I wonder who was behind that. For the same reasons, the lawyers also asked the Australian government for assurances that if repatriated to Australia, Assange would not be extradited to the United States. These letters triggered an intense internal discussion between ministries in Canberra, especially regarding Assange's possible extradition to Sweden and onward surrender to the United States. Internal assessments were produced, emails went back and forth, and their content differed significantly from other official pronouncements. This correspondence leaves no doubt that the Australian authorities were well aware of the risk of a temporary surrender of Assange from Sweden to the United States for the purpose of criminal proceedings. The Australian officials plainly attached no importance to the Swedish government's assertions to the contrary. In the world of diplomatic relations, the fact that Stockholm, 
refused to issue a non-refoulement guarantee to Assange, spoke a clear language, and left no room for misunderstandings. Against this background, Australia's unwillingness to stand up for a politically persecuted national can only be described as shameful. The government's official responses remain formalistic, self-righteous, and sanctimonious, but in substantive terms completely distant and non-committal. The primary smokescreen deflecting from its manifest indifference is the claim that extradition proceedings are always a matter of bilateral law enforcement cooperation governed by the domestic laws and practice of the states involved in which Australia would not be expected to be a party. Nevertheless, the expectation that Assange's case will proceed in accordance with due process has been expressed to both Swedish and British governments on several occasions. If Assange were to return to Australia, it would be within the government's discretion to refuse his extradition to the United States, but this would have to be assessed on a case-by-case basis, and no assurances could be given at this time. In effect, Assange's lawyers rightly spoke of an Australian declaration of abandonment, and he had been discarded by his own government. British plans to storm the embassy. Assange's last resort is Ecuador, whose president, Rafael Correa, has proved to be a supporter of WikiLeaks in the past. Assange knows that he can obtain diplomatic asylum solely on the grounds of political persecution. Not in order to escape Swedish rape investigations, he is seeking protection from possible extradition to the United States, where he faces a real risk of life in solitary confinement and possibly even the death penalty because of his work for WikiLeaks. For Assange, this is the only reason for his asylum request. And for Ecuador, it will be the only reason for granting his request. On 19 June 2012, Assange has come to the Ecuadorian embassy to stay. The government in Quito reacts quickly and grants temporary protection, pending a detailed examination of Assange's request. During these first days, the diplomatic staff, led by Ambassador Ana Alban, faces major logistical challenges. The embassy has a total of only 10 rooms, all of which are located on the same floor. No one is prepared for a permanent guest. A bedroom must be set up for Assange, and sanitary facilities must be expanded. He will be given a computer and internet access. He can also use a small kitchenette. Step by step, his improvised accommodation becomes permanent. For the time being, Assange is safe or trapped, depending on the perspective. The British police are deployed in front of the embassy and demonstratively block the way out. They too have come to stay. Humiliated by Assange's move, the British government struggles to retain its posture. On 15 August, the day before Ecuador is to render its final decision on Assange's asylum status, a British embassy official in Quito hands the Ecuadorian government a note verbale for the contingency of Assange being granted diplomatic asylum. You need to be aware that there is a legal base in the United Kingdom, the Diplomatic and Consular Premises Act, 1987 that would allow us to take actions in order to arrest Mr. Assange in the current premises of the embassy. A thinly veiled warning that Britain is prepared to storm the embassy, the note verbal concludes with the words, we very much hope not to get to this point. It later transpires that Foreign Secretary William Haig himself insisted on this unprecedented threat against the strong reservations of his legal advisors. Predictably, it results in diplomatic upheaval. Secretary Haig's Ecuadorian counterpart, Ricardo Patino, has strong words. If the measures announced in this British official communication materialize, they will be interpreted by Ecuador as a hostile and intolerable act, and also as an attack on our sovereignty, which would require us to respond with greater diplomatic force. Patino, quite rightly, considers the British threat a clear breach of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. He fears a dangerous precedent that would open the door to the violation of any nation's sovereign spaces, which include embassy buildings. On 24 August, the Organization of American States, the OAS, quickly convened by Ecuador for the extraordinary meeting, came to the same conclusion. In their final resolution, the OAS states declare their solidarity with Ecuador and vigorously reject any attempt that might put at risk the inviolability 
of the premises of diplomatic missions. William Haig has made a mistake, and he knows it. He has to row back. The British Foreign Office now asserts that there was never any threat to storm the embassy. It was all just another unfortunate misunderstanding. I'm just going to butt in here. I happen to remember being on Twitter when there was a threat to storm the Ecuadorian embassy when I was following Julian on Assange on Twitter. So it was all just another unfortunate misunderstanding, even with the risk of a violent invasion banned. However, the siege of the embassy building remains real. One of the Metropolitan Police officers on duty outside the embassy carries a document with handwritten notes under his arm, which is captured by a press photographer with a highly sensitive camera lens. At least parts of the document can be deciphered and reveal instructions that in case of an exit from the embassy, Assange is to be arrested under all circumstances, even if he should be in a diplomatic vehicle or hidden in a diplomatic bag. In both cases, such an arrest would still be a clear violation of the international law on diplomatic immunity. In order to grasp the political magnitude of these events, it must be stressed that no state would dare blatantly violate the international law on diplomatic relations just to enable a foreign country to interview a man who has repeatedly expressed his willingness to fully cooperate under the terms of mutual legal assistance who is not violent, and whose case has been stuck at the preliminary investigation stage for two years, without any realistic prospect of an indictment, let alone a conviction. The threat to forcibly seize Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy illustrates not only the British government's anger at the unforeseen turn of events, but, above all, the immense political dimensions of the case. In reality, of course... The British government is not the least concerned with the Swedish investigation, and certainly not with the petty offense of bail violation which Assange committed when seeking asylum in the embassy. No government in the world would consider storming a foreign embassy except in the extreme circumstances such as a terrorist attack, hostage taking, or other serious and imminent threats to public safety. Apparently. The world power Britain indeed perceives Assange as a threat of this magnitude. Assange himself is well aware of the big picture. In a brief speech delivered from the balcony of the embassy building on 19 August 2012, he thanks the Ecuadorian government, embassy staff, and all other supporters, and then appeals to the U.S. president. I ask President Obama to do the right thing. The United States must renounce its witch hunts against WikiLeaks. The United States much, must pledge before the world that it will not pursue journalists for shining a light on the secret crimes of the powerful. He goes on to demand the same for whistleblowers like Chelsea Manning, who by then has been in American custody without a trial for more than 800 days. Manning was given a pardon by, by Obama at the last minute. Quote, unquote, don't you get cold feet. On 31st of August, two weeks after Assange had received formal asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy, an interview is published quoting him as saying, quote, The Swedish government could drop the case. I think this is the most likely scenario. Maybe after a thorough investigation of what happened, they could drop the case. End quote. The British Crown Prosecution Service is not amused. Less than three hours after the publication, they send an email calling their Swedish colleagues to order, Don't you dare get cold feet. Eighteen months earlier, the British had strongly advised the Swedes against questioning Assange in London or through remote means. Now they are warning against dropping the case. Again, one might ask, why are they doing this? Why are they so invested in a case that doesn't even involve a British national? Should they not be relieved if Sweden no longer wants to pursue the case? After all, there would be no more expenses for the siege and surveillance of the embassy and no more public protest against Assange's persecution. For the sake of credibility, Assange's bail violation could still be sanctioned with a fine in addition to the confiscation of the bail deposit of 200,000 pounds. After that, the whole case could be closed and everybody could return to business as usual. But that is not what is happening. Instead, 
The British authorities seem to have a strong interest in Sweden continuing its investigation and maintaining a threat scenario against Assange. At the same time, the Swedish prosecutor does not seem to be genuinely keen to get Assange extradited to Sweden. When on 29 November 2012, her British colleague jokingly writes, quote, I am sure you can guess what I would just love to send to you as a Christmas present, she replies. I'm okay without any Christmas present. In fact, it would be a great shock to get that one. Just a joke? Perhaps. But every joke contains a grain of truth. Be that as it may, after more than a full year of a standoff, Swedish enthusiasm seems to wane. The arrest warrant issued back in 2010 cannot be maintained forever, and with Assange having permanently settled into his diplomatic asylum, the embassy siege is unlikely to end anytime soon. Prosecutor Nye seems to be under gradually mounting pressure from the Swedish judiciary. Early on Friday, 18 October 2013, she writes an email to the Crown Prosecution Service, which significantly is entitled, Question. But instead of asking a question, she explains the constraints imposed by Swedish law on open-ended coercive measures. There is a demand in Swedish law for coercive measures to be proportionate. The time passing, the cost, and how severe the crime is to be taken into account together with the intrusion or detriment to the suspect. Again, this background we have found us to be obliged to consider to lift the detention order court order and to withdraw the European arrest warrant. If so, this should be done in a couple of weeks. Then she ominously comments, this would not affect, this would affect not only us, but you too, in a significant way. <clears throat> the concluding sentence of the message, which must have contained the question, announced in its title, is redacted as it was apparently considered too delicate for the public to know about. She did ask whether the British authorities had any objections. The tone and content of the ensuing dialogue certainly suggests so. The British response follows in the late afternoon. I would like to consider all the angles over the weekend, if that is okay with you. Why would the British have to consider all the angles of a Swedish decision to lift a Swedish detention order in a Swedish case? The correspondence is odd enough to given that, in the Assange case, the British CPS supposedly represents the interests of Sweden in the United Kingdom, and not the other way around. But the correspondence gets even more revealing. First thing on Monday morning, 21 October, Marian Nye follows up, I am sorry that this came as a bad surprise. It is certainly okay for you to take your time to think this over. I hope I didn't ruin your weekend. Why on earth would Sweden's director of public prosecution ever apologize to a British mid-level official for ruining his weekend? Just because she announced that he might be soon relieved of this burdensome case? On the 2nd December of 2013, Prosecutor Nye seems to refer back to this correspondence when she writes, I didn't make myself clear at all, asking for your reviews, and then specifies the costs that are to be taken into account are those on your side and your views are weighty. It has been argued in Sweden that the English police regards the cost of cost getting unreasonably high. I understand from your answer that the cost on your side is not an issue that we should take into consideration at this stage. Hang on a second. <clears throat> Spooling. Okay, again, the Swedish prosecutor shows a remarkable level of deference to British interest in determining her own handling of this case. On 10 December 2013, CPS responds, just to confirm that I do not consider cost are a relevant factor in this matter. I have certainly not been aware of any adverse comment or concern being expressed by any government departments. As we now know, from 2012 to 2019, British police spent more than $16 million on besieging the Ecuadorian embassy. Far too much smoke for a small fire, and therefore again, a clear indication of the political dimensions of the case. So we're at 30, almost 30 minutes. I could take a break and take a call. 
So, Brady, I saw that you were you wanted to come up here, but I couldn't take your call at the moment. <clears throat> hey, Brady, what's going on? What's up? No rush. You're doing good. Um, yeah, just chilling. Happy to have a room we can actually talk and learn. And <laughs> it's like. There's a rough room going on right now in Colin. They're calling all of our rooms shitty. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh well, I mean, people are entitled to their opinions. Yeah. You know, they, they don't yeah. they don't pay for things around here. I'm just glad to see you. So I just call. I just popped in and just instantly called in just because I'm just excited to be here. So that okay, was a little me. maybe a little premature of me, but <laughs> no, no, you're cool. I mean, I'm just I, I'm reading a story. Yeah, yeah. Will you stay, stick around for Assange story I, I time? Totally, I was totally into it, yeah. <laughs> okay. You're killing it. So invite some friends to a civil room and, you know, maybe they'll they'll learn something about UN foreign policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, Amy? exactly. <laughs> so uh, if, if you don't mind, I'm just going to remove you from the speakers and then go back to my reading. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So second, discontin- second discontinuation of the Swedish investigation... <clears throat> For the time being, the British pressure works, and the Swedish courts remain complacent, leaving the Euro- European arrest warrant in place and the preliminary investigation in a dormant state. This enables Prosecutor Nye to maintain and perpetuate a completely artificial impasse by refusing to facilitate a government non refoulement guarantee that would allow Assange to return to Sweden safely for a police interview while also refusing to interview him remotely by video conference or on-site in London under applicable mutual legal assistance agreements. It is only in March of 2015 that the Swedish Supreme Court begins to lose patience with her prosecutorial procrastination and indicates its willingness to lift the arrest warrants against Assange on grounds of proportionality. For almost five years, Prosecutor Nye has been insisting that her investigation required Assange's personal presence in Sweden because it would be against the law for her to interview him in London, because a DNA sample had to be taken from him, because of the seriousness of the offenses alleged against him, and for unspecified technical investigative reasons. But in 2015, under pressure from the Supreme Court, all these insurmountable obstacles seem suddenly to have vanished into thin air, and the prosecutor agrees to interview Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, mainly due to formal disagreements between Sweden and Ecuador. However, another 20 months will pass before this interview actually takes place. In the meantime, the allegations of sexual harassment and sexual coercion made against Assange in the case of A have expired under the applicable five-year statute of limitations. The same applies to the false accusation and complaint that was filed in August 2010, but not pursued by Eva Fene, the chief prosecutor for Stockholm. At the end of August 2015, both these issues were definitely off the table. The fact that the case of A became time-barred without formal charges of being filed is often conveniently blamed on Assange hiding in the embassy. What is generally forgotten is that in the case of A, Assange had already been interviewed by the Swedish police on 30 August of 2010, within a few days of the initial police report. On that occasion, Assange was formally notified of the main allegation against him, namely that he had deliberately destroyed a condom during sexual intercourse, and he responded to all questions asked by the police. Moreover, since 7 December 2010, Assange's DNA profile had been available to the Swedish authorities via British Mutual Legal Assistance and, on 15 July 2011, the State Forensic Laboratory, SKL, rendered its detailed report on the requested DNA samples. Thus, at the latest, by 15 July 2011, the Swedish Prosecution Authority had all the evidence it could conceivably expect to obtain in order to decide whether to press formal charges or to discontinue the investigation for lack of evidence. Instead, Prosecutor Nye needlessly continued to procrastinate for more than four years. Wow. Until, finally, the case of A was pushed beyond the line of expiry and became time-barred. 
Of course, as an experienced prosecutor, Marianne Nye must have understood the evidentiary hopelessness of her case against Assange. To her, allowing the case of A to, expi to expire may have been the most elegant and convenient of all solutions, whereas it was probably the worst outcome for Assange. Not only did it perpetuate the criminal suspicion against him without the prosecutor ever being required to offer any evidence, it also allowed her to blame Assange for cheating both A and the public out of their right to truth and justice. What is hardly ever considered is that in this way Assange would effectively be stigmatized as a fugitive sex offender for the rest of his life and there was virtually nothing he could do about it. In my view, that was very likely the real purpose of the entire Swedish investigation. After the case of A had been closed and archived on 13 August of 2015, the Swedish preliminary investigation now focuses exclusively on the alleged rape of S. In her case, the applicable 10-year statute of limitation expires in August of 2020. The announced interview of Assange by the Swedish prosecutor takes place at the Ecuadorian Embassy in London. In November of 2016, an Ecuadorian prosecutor asked the questions prepared by the Swedish authorities, but Assange's Swedish lawyer is not allowed to participate. After that interview, Assange's lawyers call on the Swedish prosecution authority to finally either file formal charges or close the case. But Prosecutor Nye does neither, until Assange's lawyers once again apply to the Stockholm District Court 3 on 3 May of 2017 and ask for the arrest warrant to be lifted. The very next day, the court asks the prosecution authority to provide a response by 17 of May. Prosecutor Nye knows that she has to act. It has been two years since the Swedish Supreme Court had signaled its willingness to revoke the arrest warrant against Assange on grounds of proportionality and unsurprisingly, in the interview at the Ecuadorian embassy has not yielded the evidence required for a formal indictment. Thus, the law obliges her to admit the lack of evidence and close the case, clearing Assange of all wrongdoing. If she does not, the Supreme Court will be obliged to do it in her place, because the Swedish Code of Judicial Procedure is clear. The preliminary investigation shall be conducted as expeditiously as possible. The investigation should be conducted so that no person is unnecessarily exposed to suspicion or put to unnecessary cost or inconvenience. Upon the conclusion of the preliminary investigation, a decision on whether to institute a prosecution shall be issued. When there is no longer reason for pursuing the investigation, it shall be discontinued. On 19 May of 2017, Prosecutor Nye chooses the only option that allows her to circumvent these safeguards of the law and continue to perpetuate the rape suspect narrative against Assange without the required evidence. She discontinues the preliminary investigation into the alleged rape of S, but claims that his proper conclusion is rendered impossible because Assange remains under the protection of the Ecuadorian embassy. The prosecutor explains that it is now not possible to take any further steps that would move the investigation forward and that to continue with legal proceedings would require Julian Assange's appearance in court, thereby implying that his absence is the only reason for not proceeding with a formal indictment and trial. From a procedural perspective, of course, this rationale is putting the cart before the horse. The decision to formally charge a suspect never depends on his physical presence, but on the strength of the evidence against him. Only once the suspect is formally charged may his physical presence become necessary for the purposes of conducting the actual trial. As we now know, despite all those years of investigation, Prosecutor Nine never possessed sufficient evidence to formally charge Assange of any crime. However, instead of acknowledging this reality, conceding to the presumption of innocence and rehabilitating Assange's reputation, the Swedish prosecutor deliberately perpetuates the false impression that the only procedural obstacle to a successful criminal trial is Assange's purported evasion of justice. The official narrative must be protected at all costs. Only through Assange's continued stigmatization can public attention be diverted from the actual elephant in the room, the dirty secrets of the powerful. 
The final days before Prosecutor Nye closes a Swedish rape investigation are marked by a bitter culmination. Assange's secret lover and partner, Stella Morris, is pregnant, and the birth of their son, Gabriel, is imminent. Per Samuelson, the Swedish lawyer, forwards a personal letter from Assange to Marianne Nye, in which he asks permission to attend the birth of his son at the London Hospital. Your written agreement to this request will entail the temporary suspension of the effect of the European arrest warrant so that I am able to be transported without publicity to the maternity unit. I will remain there until my partner and child are discharged from the hospital, after which time I will return to the Ecuadorian embassy. My transport to and from the hospital will occur in diplomatic vehicle. But Prosecutor Nye's answer is unequivocal. Unequivocal, sorry. Request rejected. There lacks the necessary legal prerequisites to temporarily suspend or make an exception to the court's decision that you were to be detained in your absence as well as issued of the European arrest warrant, which has expired. On 26 April, the prosecutor sends her decision in Swedish to Assange's lawyer, followed by the English translation on 16 May. By the 16th, of course, Marianne Nye is fully aware that she will discontinue the Swedish investigation against Assange only three days later. Assange pleads with her to reconsider, but to no avail. With this last deed, Marianne Nye bows out from her persecution of Assange. On 19 May of 2017, she discontinues the Swedish investigation. But Assange remains confined to the Ecuadorian embassy. All of a sudden, the British authorities have become particularly keen on prosecuting Assange's bail violation five years earlier. Good Lord. The only accusation against him that has not been dropped or disproven, and in the background the U.S. Department of Justice ramps up its efforts to indict Assange under the Espionage Act of 1917. Wow. Okay, I'm going to end it for today. It's 42 minutes into the, into the podcast. We'll resume with NSA scandal and DNC leaks next time. Would anybody like to jump up here and speak before we take off or before I take off? Amy? Brady? Pick on either one of you? Okay. It's going to be Brady again. Brady Bingo! What's up? Just want to say cool show. Thanks for hosting one. Kind of been popping in and out while I'm cooking and whatnot, but it's good to hear about Freedom for Julian Assange. Um, uh, he, he ain't free. He's in Belmarsh uh, Prison right good. now. I, I, I realized that as soon as I said, it, "I was like, oh God, no." Well, it's good to hear about someone talking about at least the Julian Assange situation and trying to trying to get some freedom for the man. Well, um, here's the, here's the thing: is that this guy has spent 12 years of his life and seen two of his children born while in, while in captivity. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! He got married formally this summer to Stella Morris uh, remotely. They had a, a wedding and proxy in front of Belmarsh Prison. So sad. It is. It's it's terrifying that <clears throat> that someone who who is a hero for the whole well, world. There, he's going to be a hero to some and a villain to others. But the Espionage Act is for spying, and I don't think that he's a spy. Yes, exactly. He was doing journalism. Right. He's not a spy, and I don't think our government has the right to prosecute him under the Espionage Act. Of course, you know, I'm not a strong enough lawyer. I'm I'm like a little peanut in the in the peanut gallery going, "It's not true." <laughs> well, you know, he's one of the lucky ones. If you if you do journalism too good, you get a CIA award and they take you out. Oh my gosh. A CIA yep. award. CIA award, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that that's, you know, should we really be afraid of the CIA? They're a foreign agency. We should, but we should not be. <laughs> All right, maybe I said that maybe the FBI would be the, the one uh, I, I meant to say there. Well, the, I the, the, the FBI has become like the arm of the politicized, you know, they've become our Stasi Politburo. Uh, DHS had some of that reputation, but they're more or less a an, an agency that has a lot of Gestapo-like uh, policing 
you know, but they, they do the unwanted stuff, like the routine, um, you know, inspection of people coming through, uh, yeah. inspecting of the shoes, inspecting of the borders, inspecting of the articles. You know, it's a very bureaucratic yeah, what the American people want is an agency that takes care of unsolved mysteries. <laughs> okay, so Amy's like, love y'all, gotta go. And so she took <laughs> off. And so, you know, every now and then I'll, I think I'm going to get a person in here that might be a FBI informant or an FBI I'm sure body. some of these people are working for somebody. Some, I, I, I'm not sure of it. But I get that sneaking suspicion, too. That there's some yeah. characters popping in and out. They're like, hmm, what's going on here? Who's well, feeding I mean, this guy? Yeah, I, I, there's no way to, to really positively confirm it. But, you know, I know that, that Charlie Weiser and the people at Colin could. But <laughs> they're relatively harmless. I mean, they're not committing yeah. any type of, you know, de- de- deliberate intrusions. I'll, I'll tell you this. There was a woman I met in Austin one time... Who you might what in a capital know. town? Get out of here! I know. Who can imagine a capital city woman hanging in a capital city? But like, uh, she's like this Barbie Be- doll behaving. She's this gorgeous Barbie doll looking, mm-hmm. conservative looking figure, but she's like highly, highly liberal, um, like mm-hmm. like extremely liberal, and she's like encouraging people to like commit acts of violence and like all this other stuff, and she's like mm-hmm. extremely, extremely radical. That sounds and like I, I, that sounds like something that would happen in Los Angeles, but there's a lot of LA transplants here, just so you know. Yeah. Like whatever they were doing to get by in Hollywood, they just keep doing it. Uh-huh. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of direct action in um, in LA. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of little, what I call booby traps. Um, yeah, booby traps, exactly. That's <laughs> what I felt like she was, as a booby trap. She was gorgeous. You know, right. she was way too pretty to be doing that. No, I know it sounds, it's, it's a fucked up thing to say. No, it isn't, and I'll know, tell you why. I'll tell you exactly why. I've been around the block a little bit. I used to live in Los Angeles. And what I discovered after living there for a little while is that they've got some really sincere national security S-H-I-T going on. We're talking yeah. like serious like JPL, but we're talking Darth Vader like national yeah. security and NASA stuff. Darth yeah. Vader. Um, the guy who was, I can't remember the name of the guy who started JPL. Let me go get his name. He was, he had his own cult. And he actually was, was uh, he was cuckolding the wife of L. Ron Hubbard at one point. That's how weird it got. And um, let me see here. JPL proprietor. There's a lot of dark characters and a a really storied uh, history. So let's let's look here. The history. Trippy. (laughs) So it started as the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory at the California Cal Institute of Technology, GAL-SIT. And they did rocket experiments out of Arroyo Seco. So Jack Parsons, this guy, ugh. You know, and they, they, there was all kinds of speculation that he was linked to the um, Black Orchid deaths. Um, so he had both libertarian and occult writings that were published posthumously. And historians of Western esoteric traditions cite him as one of the more prominent figures in propagating Thelema across North America. And so, although academic interest in his scientific career was negligible, historians have come to recognize Parsons' contribution to rocket engineering. So again, he's he's another occult space Nazi, um, but he just kind of did his own thing, and uh, he was just a high strange weirdo. So you have JPL high strange and some occult darkness kind of commingled there, and then you have that that invites a certain particular 
node of influence, and that's dark government. So there's a dark government host in LA, and that's two things. That's the the people who do occult stuff, and then Hollywood, their press corps, and then the deep state. Okay, they're all working together in some, you know, there's a lot of overlap and that sort of thing. So you get a lot of temple prostitutes who, who attend these government events. And, yeah, I met one of them, actually, which is really uncomfortable. You know, I'm in the room with, you know, a woman who's like an MK Ultra survivor. No, 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 she was from a different program. I have met an MK Ultra survivor, but I did meet a woman who was in Project Stargate, okay? Project Stargate. And, man, that was wild. I actually did a radio program with them, an online radio program with them for, like, I don't know, four and a half months. Whoa. But one of them could not keep themselves from dragging in um, unannounced, you know, travails that they were being harassed to turn their, their child over to pedophiles. And that, that's the? where I, I, you know, we would have these pre, uh, pre-programming discussions that were totally legit and on the level, and then she would just, she would just dump out onto the airways, and it got really creepy. Well, I mean, that's so, okay. Like, if someone was doing that, I mean, I mean you're I'd okay with it. it, but I wasn't, because it was unplanned, and that's not cool. It's like somebody, you, you decide what the set list is before you get up and play. Yeah, but if then, someone's child's being, like, threatened... And they're trying to get the word out. I'm like, get it, girl. Go for it. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't quite that structured. She was very... Um, so she it, it seemed, seemed like kind of like, these... a, like an Alex Jones situation where they, they make the whole thing look crazy. Mm, no, it's a little different. Okay, she, she seemed crazy because she didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have anyone that she would any legitimate authorities that she could approach or go to. So she kind of outed herself to make herself look it made the program look bad for several reasons and it's not because, you know, her child was threatened. It was because it flagged people who were pedophile watchers to flag the program. Just like this this uh the Swedish prosecution authority, you know, mm. they, they, they came up with this bogus case, this, this artifice of a uh, rape case, and they never intended to prosecute it. Let's just say for hypothetical reasons, she had no intention of going to the authorities to report any kind of real uh, menacing threat to her child by pedophiles. But the, the right. point of mentioning it is to get an NSA flag or a deep state flag on the program. Oh, got you. Got right? you. Right? That's right. that was a whole that was the whole point. So, uh, that creeped me out because it was a betrayal of our camaraderie. Like we're we're here to kind of rehab the experience of being in a highly strange situation, which I have been, and that was another one. So <laughs> I would have just totally taken that bait hook line and sinker. Yeah, I mean I, I didn't I mean, I tried to kind of back out of it. Like, there's no way that this is going to be okay. None of this. None of, no, no part of this am I okay with. And I had to say it. had to say it loud. And then I had to deflect. And I'll, I'll tell you how I did it. I deflected by saying, I'll tell you who's not accountable. And, and I turned it on the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> I just turned it on the Vatican because they, the, at that point... It was an unserious – there was the government, the federal government had a really unserious approach to prosecuting, um, you know, known Vatican pedophiles. They were covering yeah. for them, and they were just allowing them to molest Catholic children and any children that end up being happened upon in their path. They were a community yeah. menace, and nobody did anything about them. And so Rome did not care to enforce U.S. law. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I was like, okay, so I would cons- – oh, man, I bagged on AEI, which is the you know conservative's conservative conservative think tank. Oh. You know, I took them to task, and I, one day I said, you know what? If these people are so conservative that if tomorrow – the Vatican decided to jump up and change their policy to 
to to out their their pedo priest, they would jump up and say, "Don't change a thing. It's it's yeah, let's just keep it conservative." And that that bit somebody. So I you can you can do things a different way and really get under people's skin because they do feel guilty about bad things. Yeah. Maybe. After a while, people can't that. sleep at night. They yeah. run from it as long as they can, but you know what? God will haunt them. You can see it on their faces. You can see it on their faces that they are haunted people, like you said. And uh, I came up with a really useful term yesterday I think you might appreciate. What's that? Um, it's yoetic. And that is anything <laughs> pertaining. <laughs> you already did can you it. write that? Like, can you write that in the chat? <laughs> yes. Because this is where the what is like yoetic? Like, is it like poetic? Then is it like, like like yoetic? <laughs> it's it's yawetic. You'll get it when you read it. Okay, so Yahweh. Oh my bad. Yeah, yawetic. <laughs> Yahweh. It doesn't want to let me spell it yet. Okay. It's auto-correcting me. So it'd be like, yeah. God damn it. I love talks, Brady, because they're so much fun. <laughs> yeah, likewise. <laughs> You're a blast to talk to. <laughs> Yoetic. So when somebody calls you anti-Semitic, you say, no, 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 sir. I am not anti-Semitic. I am anti-Yoetic. And that means I oppose all three sects of the cult of Abraham, the cult of Yahweh. Huh? I'm not sure if I oppose I oppose any of them so much. You know, I'm, I I guess there was definitely a period where I got like kind a, of an example of how to use it in a sentence. Oh yeah, so like, yeah, great, 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 uh, great. You're like I'm just gonna opt out of all this conflict because it doesn't belong to me. And it definitely yes. was something that I something I, that decided, I, I to decided to do. Because um, um, I get approached by weird Catholic, Catholic weirdos. weirdos. Um, um, trying to play, play the Masonic card. And that's what it was, is that people want to get close to you. There's a, there's a lot of feedback on your line. Um, oh, I apologize. Brady, can you... Phone locked. Go for it. Okay. I'll try to mute. Uh, I'll mute up. No, it's still, it's still happening. Sorry. I have wet, sticky fingers. Damn it. <laughs> Nothing's working. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me just mute, Let me just mute your yeah, mic I'm... while I. Okay. All right. So, <clears throat> a few years ago, um, I kind of had a, not a break. Well, I guess maybe like just a sabbatical from active Christianity because I just I couldn't reconcile with some of the stuff that had happened to my my Native American side of the piece of the puzzle. Um, and I, I knew that people in the church like that I had known meant no harm. They had nothing to do with it. You know, I wasn't blaming them, but it still was really tough for me to deal with. Um, it's not that I wasn't believed or anything like that, but if I, if I even mentioned the fact that, you know, there was some Native heritage then, then it became some sort of weird contest. It wasn't like, hey, you're still another Christian. I've known you this entire time, you know. Let's let's you know let's keep talking about you know our faith, you know for some reason it is was those particular instances where you know my ethnic heritage became a, a an obstacle to their their faith somehow, and I'm thinking that's that's something I I I really couldn't it was a sticking point. Because these people weren't as authentic as I thought they were. They thought it was like, it was, they didn't know the difference between Christ and genocide. They thought they were entitled to both. So, that was tough for me. And because, because they invited all of these, you know, they said that this, that Christianity is a, is a, a faith of all nations, and it is. But there are definitely some people in America who didn't get the memo Brady, and you know they, they are trained in a different kind of racist tradition of Christianity, American Christianity, which is more more missionary, oppressive, and I just didn't want to admit that that was true or that was part of my faith. So I took a little sabbatical away from all of it, and I, I just I needed to be alone. So 
So I and there was some really dark stuff that was going on already. You know, there was dark stuff like swirling around me because of you know the the aerospace crap and the LA crap. So <laughs> so when I was telling you what I wanted to tell you was that LA has this extreme dark side, and like I said that there were you know the the, the dark government people would recruit temple prostitutes to do bad stuff and. Sometimes those people would also cross over into some Hollywood, you know, screenwriting and development. And sometimes those people would also kind of bleed over and recruit other people, not necessarily for the occult stuff or even the deep state stuff, but to manipulate the press. So kind of one of those filtration systems or one of those kind of filtering places uh, of muckety-muck would be like the Inquirer or the tabloids. Are, are you still with me? I just just send me a, an emoticon of something if you're still still uh, still listening here. Okay, thanks. Muted up every now and then. I'm like, whoa, wow, but I'm. Okay, you're you're muted. We're cool. So uh, let me just get through it. So the tabloids have access to all these these pots of smut. I'm gonna call them pots of smut. <laughs> okay, so you've got the occult pot, and then you've got the deep state pot and they're, they're all sources of misinformation and garbage human garbage you know they recruit from one end and then use them to attack the other so you'll get pro- paparazzi that were out there taking clandestine photos in say a war zone two years ago they've been decommissioned from from the US military intelligence unit and they need something to do but they're just sublime assholes so they put them to work they refer them to a job at, say, the Inquirer, and they they go hunt, they go hunt celebrities. They, you know, they're fed information, and they magically appear in their backyard or at their, um, you know, at their villas or at you know wherever. And the studios will pay the tabloid for this this clandestine coverage. It's it's a feature, okay? The studios pay for it. Sometimes. The contracts that are negotiated with, say, like CAA and the other, like Warner, Warner Brothers, you know, those are just a couple of studios. I'm just giving you some, some, you know, they will negotiate whether or not the paparazzi actually happens. Okay? So there was an anti-paparazzi law that went for it because they got really aggressive. Okay? The paparazzi in L.A. are hella aggressive. And um, they will run you over to get to Paris Hilton. So uh, what I wanted to say was that they put in a law, she was part of it, to make sure that children are not, that the children of the celebrities are not photographed when they're with their parents. And so it would protect their families. needed to protect children um, from, from the lurid paparazzi. So I have a, I have a working theory, which is That's probably why all these movie stars are adopting black children. They're using them suddenly as got kids. That's right. I, I think that that's also one of the reasons why Angelina Jolie has nine kids or something like that. For the because Gotta keep of the going around to keep the pop, paparazzi away. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Oh my god. <laughs> Just speculation. <laughs> so I mean, it, it was kind of a long tour to tell you that stuff, but I just want you to know that 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 LA is a dark place. That's wild. Yeah, <laughs> I, I still have I, I still have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but I am very much looking forward to that. Oh, it's one of the best films. It really is. Nice. Of all the films all the that um, Tarantino. That what's his name? Tarantino. Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I'm getting feedback from your mic again. Oh, my bad. I'll just say this quickly, then we gotta go. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Um, so Leonardo DiCaprio was in that film, but he played this kind of working class um, um, actor that was that was kind of at the tail end of his he, his his prospects were dwindling, and he was going to go into to Italian film, Italian spaghetti westerns, like after this. And and so the the setting is really great. The acting is superb. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen Leonardo DiCaprio ever do in his entire career. Ooh, was when he excellent. Was, Damn, was that's when he was lot. in his trailer 
yelling at himself for an inferior or perceived inferior performance. It was the most hysterical thing I've ever seen in my life. That's, that's going to be so relatable because that's that's me every show that I do. That's, that's every every performing every actor, performing every performing actor. anyone <laughs> ha- goes through that. They're like, ah! <laughs> I suck. Oh my god. That's right. That's right. Uh, it's embarrassing seeing yourself. Yeah, you should go see it now. Go go, go watch it now. Watch it now. Let's get off this phone yeah. and and. And go see go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sounds like a plan. Well, tonight I'm watching The Barbarian, and maybe after The Barbarian I'll do a double feature. Great. Great plan. Thanks for joining the Unsanctioned Citizen. Righteous. Always cool talking to you. Yeah, always. All right, stay cool. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack. Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit Sheila M.